everybody. I'm Pastor AJ Hausman, and welcome to 10 Foot Pole, a podcast to dig deeper into aspects of the Bible that get glossed over or totally ignored in most preaching. The Bible has a lot of parts that are racy, uncomfortable, and sometimes downright horrifying. Let's talk about it. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 13. Today, our guest is Jack Jenkins, another return guest, who is an author and is a national reporter with the Religion News Service. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Always a pleasure to be here. Yeah. And today, um, even though Jack's got some really cool um, projects that he's been working on that you should head over to RNS to read about them, um, we're going to talk about, uh, you know, just a normal kind of Bible Sunday. Um, I'm actually really excited that you're here for this specific uh, Bible text. Um, so we're going to read um, Genesis 2, chapter, or Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, and then Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. And I'll kind of explain the parts that we kind of miss in there. Um, and this is for Sunday, February 26, for those that are going to go to church. Uh, but I'm really excited to talk about this. Um, this is a particular text that when I say, you know, in my first season sort of spiel that this is definitely a thing that people aren't going to touch with a 10 foot pole. Um, this is one of those texts that I think that every pastor is like, oh, yep, definitely skip right over that. That's too many uh, hard, uncomfortable question things that we don't want to talk about. So um, cheers. Lucky for Jack gets to be here to talk about these uncomfortable things. I am going to read um, the regular uh, NRSV version, but I am going to make just a couple of, uh, I'm going to make a couple of notes and read this just slightly different so that I, I think what's important to understand. The The big one is here is, so this beginning part where uh, God took the first human and put them in the garden. This is where we're at. We're reading the story of the tree of good and good and evil and them eating the fruit of it. Um but so this this word here, God took this first human, you will probably see man or you will see Adam somewhere. Well, the word Adam isn't actually a proper name. Uh, Adam is the word for a human, a, just a general human or more specifically sort of like earthling or dirtling uh, because the Adama, so the Adam comes from the Adama. The Adama is the ground. It's the earth. It's the dirt, which is where God, you know, forms this human out of the dirt. That's the language we get. So the Adam comes from the Adama. So I am going to say Adam so that you understand that this isn't necessarily like male and female, that this is that it's, it's sort of to understand that this is the first earthling. This is the first human that God created. Um, and then later on when God does create two humans. Um, so there's two, my backup, just one second. There are two creation stories. I know I've mentioned that on the podcast before, so people understand. This is a part of the second creation story. So in the first creation story is the one that, you know, we hear more often. It's it's the more poetic one that like, God created the trees and said it was good. And God created the animals and said they were good. And God created the humans and said they were good, right? That's the story we're most, so this is the second story. In that first story, God creates two humans at the same time. It's not one and then the other. It is our second creation story where we get this language where God created one earthling and then out of that first earthling, God then like splits them and makes two earthlings. 
And it's not until this second part, uh, it's not until sort of the end of Genesis, I think it's chapter two, verse like 26, I looked it up, is when the language goes from um, the Adam, the singular human earthling, to where we have um, this name change because uh, it goes from uh, Ish and Ishat. So Isha is woman. And so it, it's a play. So it comes out of the Ish. So that's when the language for the man changes from Adam to man and woman. When we have that distinguish, it's no longer Adam, but Ish and Ishash. So I just want to say that. So that's all to say, like, I'm going to make that clear when I read it to understand that there is a difference when there's like this first earthling to then we have the distinguishable people, which may not make any difference to anyone else out there. Um, but I do think that it's important to, to understand um, that a lot of the genderizing that we like to do, um, specifically people who are anti-LGBT try to quote some of this very old text and give it very gendered language, um, that that's not actually authentic to the original Hebrew. So thanks, Jack, for listening to that long explanation before I actually read uh, any of the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> here for it every time. Absolutely. Oh, great. Good to hear. This is my, I got to teach you a little my, bit. Absolutely. Flashbacks to my my old Hebrew lessons, which I which I was not good at, but I technically <laughs> did. So, Yeah, I, I understand that, too. I was very good at like the conceptual thing. But when it came down to actually reading the Hebrew, I was like, ooh. So <laughs> anyways. So Genesis chapter two, verses 15 to 17, and then we skip a chunk. And this is the chunk that we skip is actually the part where uh, God creates the second human. Um, and then we meet up again in chapter three, verses one to seven, where we meet this serpent in the garden. All right, here we go. The Lord God took the Adam and put them in the garden of Eden to till and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the Adam, you may freely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Now chapter three. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. So this is, uh, this, this part <laughs> of the Bible is one that like, it's interesting. So when you look at it like critically in sort of a, a scholarly textual place, you wouldn't think that it would have so much pull over Christianity as it does. But this mm. particular part of the this this these short verses have so much sway. So this is um like uh, this is where we draw on the language of original sin, right? So if you ever heard that language, this is that original sin that they committed by eating this fruit. 
Um, what you will notice here is there's no no use of the language sin. Um, that that wasn't quite a concept. Uh, and so that is something that we have inserted later. What do you think? You can chime in at any time. That's oh, no. Oh, no. I'm about to say, I mean, like, uh, I mean, clearly, right? I mean, the, see, this my, my fundamental question that I've always had with this passage and rooting it in the concept of sin and rooting it as like the basis for any number of patriarchal elements of the Christian tradition, yeah. among others, is that what, what has always confused me is the narrative is structured in such that the tree is the knowledge of good and evil, right? That's how you know good and evil, right? So, like, literally, the Adam and Eve did not know, according to Scripture, what good yeah. and evil was, yeah. what bad and uh, and good was. And so then, like, this, you know, this, um, the snake, Satan, the devil, what have you you know, opportunistically exploited that moment. I actually am going to stop you right there. So the inserting of the snake of the serpent as the devil or Satan, that actually is inserted into the inserted into the way we read this text much, much later at the time that this was written, the concept of an actual like um, devil type, you know, Satan devil isn't a thing yet. There you go. That's something even that right there is something we insert into the story. But exactly, you talk a good point. How do they know it's wrong? No, they they literally exactly. that's the whole thing, right? They they don't have a concept of right and wrong yet. That's the that's so the like, point of if I mean it I guess it depends. It, it gravitates around your definition of sin, right? Like is sin just yes. missing the mark as the literal interpretation? Is it this active like I know what's good and bad, and then I do a bad yeah. thing? Because if that's sin, Adam and Eve didn't know. In yeah. fact, what's weird is that if you if you kind of read the story in that context, it, it's kind of interesting to conceptualize like was was this ever not going to happen right mm-hmm. like that if you have two created individuals by god who then there's like this this third actor um that uh however defined was like manipulating them to like oh, i want you to know about good and evil yeah. and then god's like how could you and like the people were like oh we didn't we literally didn't know that this was like necessarily bad i know you told us not to but we literally yeah. didn't know they didn't have the concept good of and it. evil <laughs> So, uh, I wrote a paper about this in seminary. I'm going to talk about it in a second. Um, My professor really didn't like what I had to say. Um, And I'm going to share it with you. But first to just talk about this text a little bit. So, um, we've we've mentioned this in the last few because I've been trying to dive a little bit more into these Old Testament texts. So this is um, so the, the we've talked about the the documentary hypothesis um, and you know just the concept that like there are different authors um, that kind of compiled to put together. That's why we have two creation stories, two flood stories, those kind of things. So this particular um, chunk here um, is attributed to the the J, so the Yahwehist source, um, which would have been you know written they believe um, based on a lot of contextual clues somewhere in uh, Judea, um, most likely during uh, the period in which. Uh, Solomon was king. Um, that this is when it was like written. Obviously, um, Genesis was put together and compiled a little later. Um, but so something uh, just about like what was I talking about? Oh, uh, understanding <laughs> sort of. I, I do this sometimes, and I like go and I like talk about too much of this. Like, oh yeah, the the meat of the the context stuff. That I like forget what the actual point of of what I this was is, trying to say. This um, is why I write. So, cause I, I can just have it. Right, all then you can go me. back. Yeah. That makes <laughs> yeah. more sense. Um, this is what editing for sometimes I'll like take those parts out where I don't know what I'm talking <laughs> about. Um, so, uh, 
anyways, so the this this concept of of what they're talking about here, so having this concept of of sort of this good and evil and and putting into place where this is written. So um this is we talked about this also recently. Um, this is another example of an etiology, which means um what it is 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 ex- it's 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 a story to explain something that those people had experienced to be true that they had to mm. they had, you know, it's it's an explanation. Um, I, I've actually recently discovered this is something that, um, not to any way say that these people have dementia by any means, but this is something, um, uh, folks with dementia do that there is something that they believe to be true in their mind and they will create a story to make that true Hmm. An experience. Like they will, they will make up experiences to make what they're, make what is true to them in their minds, like a reality. Hmm. Anyways not saying these people have dementia at all but this is a way that like when when they're trying to explain life's big questions these are the stories that they they make up to um to explain it that go along with their faith um and then at some point in time we decided that this was true and factual um which is not authentic to the text either it was not to meant to be taken factual there was not an actual snake that's a literary character that's quite common to use literary um especially uh animal personified literary characters um especially when you're explaining like stories to children which is what many of these started out to like explain why things are um there's also similar uh stories in um you know uh, in these and other ancient near east cultures have their own you know kind of sort of stories and etiologies and there's actually almost an identical story um in in the, the babylon uh, epic of gilgamesh so you can read about that if you'd like um very similar story anyways so i wanted to say so like what i had to say uh about so you talk about this concept of them like not literally not understanding the good and evil um my problem that I have with this story and how we blame the humans and especially for um, especially this patriarchal structure that wants to blame women for all sin. And that's a whole thing we can mm-hmm. go down um, that mm-hmm. that um, and there are still Christians that think that right, that like a woman is who holds the sin and that um, her husband is only like sinful through her. It's the weird. I, I don't even under, it doesn't even yeah. totally make sense to me. But my struggle with this. If we're reading the story as it is and talking about who's to blame here, God created the tree and the serpent and the temptation situation. So why? You know, if this is really to be a thing where they did something wrong, mm-hmm. how are they not to? God literally set them up for failure. And that's a really hard thing to think about, too. Why would God do that? Right. It's like it's like the preeminent example of theodicy from the beginning, right? Yes. Like this question of like, why do bad things happen? Like, why was the tree there, God? You know, yeah. like why? And, yeah. and 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 like why was why was this tipter there? Like, what what are we doing here? And um, and I, I do think I've heard people wrestle with that. Like, mm-hmm. you know, if if yeah, like it's one thing to kind of emphasize the the element of the, the the decisions which again i have questions about how informed those decisions are given yeah. they literally didn't have knowledge of good and evil but the the, the decisions of the actors in the scriptural story um that, that to emphasize that this was bad which certainly god emphasized at the end of the story right but like you know there is this broader question of okay what is the origin of sin then like is mm-hmm. it a in, informed decision that humanity made is it god like this is the the classic kind of um context you hear in any number i know I defer to you and your pastoral background i'm sure you hear people wrestle with all the time why do bad things happen why would yeah. god do this right yeah 
Uh, you know, this particular text, I don't think we wrestle with enough in the question of, of theodicy. Um, I, I think because I think that this can be one of those texts that if you start to really break down those in those individual pieces of it, it can be very alarming and troubling, um, especially to how we try to reconcile some of these more uncomfortable parts of the Bible with our faith. Um, which is also why I think it's important to talk about. Um, and also why I think maybe we should, um, you know, maybe wrestle with and spend some more time understanding about what we think sin is um, and where it came from and what it means to God um, even. Uh, because this is also comes out on the side of looking at sin as these individual actions um, that the most important thing that we can do in our relationship with God is control our individual actions. Um, and I think that that's a flawed way of looking at sin um, because I think that like the the relationship between all of humanity is what's more important to God. Um, and I think you can get some of that out of this story. But this story, I think, um, if you immediately start to just look at these humans and put all of sin and their decision here, I, I you know, I... I think it's a really flawed way to to look at our relationship with God, especially because as you named it, right? Like they didn't know what they were doing. That's literally the point of the whole story. They hadn't learned those things yet. Well, this also this also kind of points to like, you know, one of the interesting talking about just Christianity in the United States, particularly American Protestantism, yeah. like the emphasis that, of how we discuss sin um, in, in the expanse, particularly American Protestants but also Catholicism that kind of led to this divergence in the early 20th century, right? Tell us Where about it. This is what Jackson expert on this is, yeah. <laughs> well, like, I mean, one of the probably, you know, there was, uh, there are way better informed experts on this, but my understanding, you know, there was this fundamentalist modernist debate as as is discussed in the early 20th century, where um, particularly you saw what we would now describe as mainline Protestants, you know, digging really into science um, as an element of exploring scripture, of an element of exploring theology, mm -hmm. um, and also, you know, having that scripture interact with culture in certain contexts. And this group that, that you know, identified as the fundamentalists, right? And that's where we kind mm -hmm. of use that, that term in a, a contemporary religious um, vernacular in the United States emerges from this time when the fundamentalists were like, no, these certain things are really important to scripture. And this is like, we, we put our flag, uh, our flag here. Yeah. Meanwhile, there was this whole discourse about what was called the social gospel. You had pr um, prominent folks like the Baptist theologian, um, Walter Rauschenbusch, um, who kind of wrote all these things about how, like, hey, like the way our society is structured, which at the time was the Industrial Revolution or pre-Industrial Revolution, which had a lot of things that people did not like, you know, child labor and what have you. Yeah. And he kind of discussed these issues that were being created in um, he and several other um, scholars, particularly uh, what would now retroactively refer to as like black liberation um, mm -hmm. theologians and stuff. We're all having this conversation about what you're talking about as structural sin like yeah. the society is structured in a certain way where both individual sinful actions absolutely matter but in order to really uproot aspects of what is happening here we need to talk about the structure and this ended up 
actually helping um, fuel what ended up becoming the New Deal, right? It was actually mm -hmm. inf influenced by social gospelers. You know, Martin Luther King identified as a social gospeler. You can see its influence throughout the 20th century. But that was in the midst of this divergence within American theology. Where you, to this day, if you walk into a mainline church and you walk into a contemporary um, evangelical church, um, what you'll often find is the emphasis on sin is, you know, not always, but generally speaking, more structural in a mainline context and more individual in right. evangelical context. So which one would put more emphasis on the individual choices of yeah. Adam and Eve? And that is often heard, in at least in my experience, um, you know, in, in evangelical context than you're going to find necessarily in mainline contexts. Yeah. What about a, um, a Catholic perspective is pretty heavy on the original sin concept as well. For sure. For sure. Um, although it's it's gotten some interesting hiccups recently. Um, the Pope Francis back in 2018, um, he uh, he made a big statement about fake news. And he meant that like actual fake news, not like things I don't agree with that are true. Um, <laughs> the that but he was like really frustrated by this. And um and he, he referred to them as snake tactics um, and oh. and was kind of like comparing like the what fake news as 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 like, you know, the 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 uh, classic interpretation of this you know serpent in um, this passage is like when you're putting out fake news, you are actually you're not even like Adam and Eve, like you're the devil in that. context. Oh. Um, and it was like him pushing back. And it's part of this larger back and forth. Pope Francis has actually had with particularly right-wing conservative media um, within the Catholic sphere that actually ended up playing a role in the Trump, uh, the rise of Trump, which I can go yeah. on for like forever. <laughs> but, you know, absolutely, we often find, you know, an emphasis um, that isn't the same part and parcel um, that you might find in conservative evangelical circles, but mirrors a lot of that um, emphasis on individual action. What's interesting, though, about the Catholic context is that they seem to, like, you know, particularly recent popes, particularly Francis, mm -hmm. is both discussing, you know, that classical individual context of um, ind individual sin, right? This is connected to the, the often adage of, of uh, you know, Catholic guilt, as it were. Um, yeah. But then also writing treaties treatises on and well technically um exhortations and encyclicals on structural sin right this is where he write um wrote one of his first big encyclicals on economics that was actually you know seen as wow very liberal and then um his his writings on climate change also kind of talk about structural sin and so mm -hmm. the catholics seem to hold all of that intention um in a in a in a pretty robust way while not necessarily giving ground on either if that makes any sense yeah, good, you know, political kind of way that you don't actually want to take a position on having a position on a side, um, which there. So a big thing, I think, with holding contention right now, especially with um, Pope Francis, right, is that he, unlike all of his other predecessors, right, like so he is um, from Latin America and he is uh, from the Jesuit order, which is very, very, very different theology. Um both theology and uh, life experiences um, coming from that part of the world that I think influence his theology in a different way that, um, you know, those of us that are really big on liberation theology and stuff like uh, like seeing out of the Catholic Church, but it does hold them in a very, very big contention. Right. I mean, like that context, obviously, it's it's this is the birthplace of liberation theology, yeah. as we um, often discuss it is and. Um, Central and South America. Mm -hmm. Technically, the church doesn't the Catholic Church doesn't technically embrace um, liberation theology. Like, there's actually a lot of tensions that they back to the mm. Cold War about how they interpreted it and how they responded to it. 
Um, although, you know, uh, Gutierrez met with Pope Francis um, early on mm. in his papacy. So it was like both officially condemning this, uh, distancing themselves from liberation theology as uh, like this this block of ideologies or theologies, wow. while also you know being in conversation with it. And and to your point, I mean, the whole Jesuit thing is fascinating. You talk to like a lot of Catholic commentators, like the role of the Jesuit order within um, Catholicism and how there's like a lot of antipathy towards them from more conservative detractors because mm -hmm. Jesuits, can, you know, relatively speaking, um, are often decried as leaning more liberal within the church. And so you have a Jesuit pope and like, what has that done? And there's often been like conspiracy theories wrapped around um, the Jesuits th that both within but also outside of Catholicism. What was it? Uh, Thomas Jefferson specifically um, despised Presbyterians and Jesuits and Ooh, yeah. uh, wrote a whole letter about it. And the, his reasoning with that, well, one, he thought everybody was going to become Unitarian. So he was not necessarily a very great prophet in that regard. Um, but secondly, he he was concerned that they were really investing in education and that their that their goal, as it were, he described it. So you can look up the letter was to kind of like take over education everywhere. Um, and so like that element of the Jesuit order became this whole thing that was disputed and, and, and decried and like wrapped up in conspiracy theories. All that is to say, yeah, he comes from a context that I think um, has not had as much. I mean, it certainly has, is robustly represented within Catholicism, but mm -hmm. has not necessarily been as represented at the higher echelons of Catholicism. There are scholars mm -hmm. who are much smarter than me about this who talk about how there's been like a deep representation of Eurocentric Catholicism, despite the fact that that is not necessarily where most of the Catholics live these days. Right. Um, and how the elevation of Francis and Francis-like figures is part of this longer story about um, the, the reconfiguring of where the the epicenter of global catholicism actually sits mm -hmm. well i mean so i i will say also just kind of a similar line with lutheranism is sort of you know people point to even the you know the the norwegian the danish like that all of those you know super white northern people are are lutheran right and so like that gets the focus too of american lutheranism as people are tracing their heritage there which most of the lutherans majority of the lutherans in this world are in african countries Mm. Um, mm. And I think that we forget that uh, a lot um, and the difference that that plays. Anyways, getting a little off off track here. Um, <laughs> Sorry. No, listen, those make good conversations, right? Of of getting all of these uh, a little bit off track here. But um, okay, so something um, that I want to say. So this, so you know, we talked about that for Christians. Um, this this has the most profound impact on Christian theology um, over anything else in the entire Old Testament is this text right here. Um, and what's really fascinating to talk about this is there are no other references to this text anywhere in the Old Testament. Let that sit for a minute. So in all of the prophets, the rest of the writings in Jewish culture and in the land at this time, there's zero other reference to this story anywhere in the Old Testament. It doesn't get clung onto and picked up again until Paul is writing. Mm. I just, that always sits um, really interesting uh, with me about this being something that we just like cling onto so much. Hmm. Just that, 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 yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's interesting how this paints, yeah. Christian theology so specifically mm -hmm. and and um, 
because it's not like it it isn't part of, of Judaism. Um, although there's a whole other discussion we can have about in Jewish mysticism and some other traditions about the conversation around Lilith, um, you know, as, as like Adam's, uh, the, the classical interpretation is Adam's first wife was Lilith, oh. but she refused to comply and then was like banished from um, uh, the garden. And that she uh, she she's very popular with the occult and Wiccans at this point, who rep represent yeah. around roughly a million people in the United States now, which is larger than about the size of the United Church wow. of Christ. Um, and so, but like, but in addition to that, like Jewish mysticism talks about her a lot. But in Christian theology, yeah, like this this idea of original sin, right? And the in the and the idea that is permeated not only theology but politics, right? Like we even have ways yeah. of talking about. Of America's original sin, like or in uh, which 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 you, you've seen that in other countries as well. Of like when people sin, we when people think about sin, they're tracing it back towards this story, mm -hmm. um, and and that is the classical way that we talk about human sin. I'm Presbyterian, for instance, right? Total depravity is very important <laughs> to our theological structure. Um, it's very important, and you, you root it right back in the idea that we are nothing but worms, right? Like we like how could we? Um, and it, it's just been a foundational tenet of how we built, uh, you know, the Christians mm -hmm. uh, um, in general, but also like Christendom has built both theology and power um, around these concepts, right? Because if once you define sin, then you define theological rules and ultimately, in some instances, political yeah. rules around that. Yes. And that is where those get rooted in. Um, you bring up something here that what I it is one of the more fascinating pieces in this story and then how it gets sort of rewoven in and other stories in this primeval history is this concept of power. Um, that that's sort of the issue here is um, anything where the humans become like so smart that they are about to be godlike is seems to be a problem um in how the authors describe their relationship with um with god right so this is one of those stories right where they if they eat this fruit they will be like gods as in like they mm -hmm. will have knowledge they will have this power um this this power of god um of a god but uh there's it, it's echoed in the story um a little bit later in sort of in the tower of babel story um and so mm. that's what's happening is these people are building a tower and they're getting too close that they're becoming like gods and so um god's response in that situation is to scatter them across the earth and make them speak all different languages so that they can't work together anymore that's the explanation mm. given there about this concept of them being too godlike um, and so to me, that is a fascinating piece that I think we should wrestle with more um, in Christianity, especially as, you know, we get more and more technology and more and more power. There's more and more, you know, like, what does that look like um, in this concept of our power and being godlike as humans? That's that's a fascinating element. Um, I mean, it's like interesting to think of it like colloquially looking back and like, yeah, you know, I'm a senator, like. You know, like we got that godlike knowledge. It's the worst, right? <laughs> like, look what it does. It's like the a, a perpetual cautionary tale of like, yeah, yeah, you could like get godlike, and I don't think you're gonna like it. Um, but but that's an interesting element there because they're like you're like you say like that that was why it was um forbidden was that the this would give you something that would be like God and that and 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 the repercussions of that you know the classically interpreted are just we've been I mean, particularly coming from my tradition have just been like oh then we're trapped in this eternal cycle of mm. awful um that we can never escape from 
um, which is an interesting way to interpret it being more like God, right? Because um, and perhaps the element there is that like human beings are, are ill suited to have you know elements of God like traits. Um, but yeah, but then I, I, that's how what I get then, out of it yeah. too is that like we what we know is like the more power humans get, we don't necessarily do good things with it, right? Like we can mm. make terrible decisions and very destructive things um having so much power right and so like when i think about the you know what the authors may have been writing and sort of this etiology tale um both in both places is talking about that like humans can't be trusted with power because i don't think mm. i don't i don't think it's about sin right so it's it's about this knowledge and this knowledge gives them godlike power right so we we have now have this gift of this godlike power of knowing these things um, and, and so that's the problem, right? Because when we have this power, um, you know, humans can't be trusted with it. I don't know. That's, that's what I kind of think it comes down to. I think more than anything, more than, more than sin. Huh? Well, but I mean, the, the, the interesting subtext there though, is like, uh, we, we have this one in particular, we have, you know, in, in the classical interpretation, whether we want it or not. Right. Mm -hmm. Like the humanity has has eaten of the tree. Right. Mm -hmm. So now we are burdened with this um, in perpetuity throughout all of history. And, you know, I guess a lot of Christianity and aligned traditions that also um, root back to the story. The, uh, there's this perpetual project of figuring out what to do now that we have that knowledge. Right. Because like it's one perpetual thing to say project. That. That's a good, it's <laughs> a good way of putting that. Because <laughs> like, it's one thing to say like, okay, we well, now we have the knowledge of good and evil, right? Well, um, we certainly don't agree what all those things mean, right? Like yeah. a lot of my reporting is covering people who disagree vehemently on what they believe to be, you know, good godly behavior and that which is irreparably sinful. Yeah. And, um, and so like, if we got that knowledge, like, you know, that's, you know, it's it's held deep that we're still <laughs> depending yeah. on it. And I, I think it's like an but I, I think that might also appeal to some of the um what you know, when you're talking to people about sin, when there's often this kind of uh, discussion, at least in my reporting, where there's like this just is obviously evil. Right. And it leaves up to that, like, Should sort of be. interpretation. Yeah. Right. And, and so it's it's an interesting um my, my mind's just kind of spinning around what you said of like. There's this, you know, because it's not just Christianity that appeals to the story, but like this this perpetual project of interpreting what that now means for us as a species um, in conversation with each other and with God, that what having this knowledge means in practice. Yeah. Um, so this, I think, is uh, I, I know we've mentioned this before, but this is one thing where I think scripture can start to become a real problem um, is because morality isn't a set stone, right? Morality is a moving target based on your perspective, based on your experiences, right? Like it's totally relative. And so this is where I think utilizing, um, you know, sort of using scripture to defend your certain position can be such a destructive use of our holy scriptures uh, beca because of that, right? Because there isn't just one set right wrong you know like everything is a moving target um and and that's where i think that this can become so dangerous hmm. that's a fair point huh uh and i think you yeah. probably more than anybody see that in in the kinds of reporting that you do in um in some of the spheres of people that you spend spend time with 
just you mean just the the idea that we're um that that because things are subjective it can right how dangerous scripture can become very very quickly yeah i mean i will say one of the interesting things about being a religion reporter is uh you're not all religions are rooted in scripture right like that's um that's not like a lot some faiths are entirely oral others use uh you know don't have a codified text that everyone agrees upon although technically christians don't technically agree upon which all, all books like the catholics and protestants have two different bibles right um and um but you know that that idea of this like uh written foundation is is not uniform throughout faith traditions or if there is one sometimes it's a menagerie of different texts or mm-hmm. um sometimes you know objects or interpretations of those objects with texts um but you know, it, it, it I, I was talk. I've been I've talked in the past to some like legal reporters and legal scholars who kind of talk about how, um, you know, the development of writing mm-hmm. and what that meant for humanity in general. Right. Like the Gutenberg press, what was the first thing that, you know, we were really putting out there were Bibles. Right. Um, but, you know, of course, societies also established, you know, written rules, constitutions, you know, what ha- Magna Carta is, what have you to, to base things off of. But. You know, one thing I've kind of heard, um, you know, legal scholars talk about is that it's one thing to have a written um, uh, basis. And we certainly, you know, it certainly uh, focuses what people are talking about, whether that's for a faith or for a society. Mm-hmm. But it's a myth that that means that, like, we're all going to agree about what those words mean. Right. Like yeah. we just had in, um, you know, th- this past year, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, which had been decades of precedent. Yeah. And like w- there have been decades of Supreme Court justices saying that's what these words in the Constitution mean. That's what this text means to us. And then, yeah. you know, a few decades later, we're like, nah, actually, it means something else. And there's a lot of mm-hmm. reasons why that occurred. But scripture both carries a lot of authority, but it doesn't necessarily, um, at least if you look at it from the perspective of history, um, uh, mean that there's a uniformity of understanding of belief. Quite o- the opposite yeah. has been true. I, you, yeah. I, I, I would leave it to scholars of religion about whether or not um, text-based religions have had more diversity of thought than others. Um, but it certainly seems that it doesn't eliminate a diversity of thought. And, and, in, and to your point, it does lend every one of those traditions to say, but I have scripture on my side, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the classic example in American history was, um, you know, during the Civil War, yep. the institution of slavery. I was just going to say know, that if you uh, weren't. <laughs> yeah, faith leaders on both sides were like claiming scripture is like saying, you know, this is this is what justifies my position. Yeah. Um, so it did, you know, despite the fact that I think, uh, you know, particularly contemporary Americans would say, um, um, contemporary Christians, you know, would overwhelmingly argue that, you know, the scripture condemns slavery. There were very clearly people at yeah. the time who thought, no, like, absolutely not. So it's an interesting point you make of like, yeah, you know, a question, I think, for for scholars and for pastors and, you know, faith leaders across the spectrum of like, does the authority of scripture, meaning I mean that both metaphorically and literally, um, you know, lend an additional power to those who try to enforce some sort mm-hmm. of theological um, yeah. decorum? Or is it all like we're just making it up as I go along? Like, I, it's it's an interesting existential question. Well, I think it's cool. About, so if you look through right? history, like, yes, the, you know, uh, American slavery is a good example, but I think you can look far, you know, past that, um, you know, um, even, you know, all the way back to like the Crusades and stuff about how much scripture um you know, Christian scripture has been used to justify violence. 
Um, and this is where, you know, I really struggle with it. I, so I wonder when I'm having my really sort of, um, heretical moments, um, I have this like thought that I wonder like, man, do you think that God is actually like, damn it, I shouldn't have given him this Holy scripture thing because I think it's making it worse rather than better. Like, Mm. those are the thoughts that I have sometimes, right. Of like, when we think about, um, you know, especially from like a social gospel perspective, right, of sort of manifesting this kingdom come of this sort of, you know, idea uh, of taking care of people and, you know, having an equitable society and all these things that, you know, a just society that we we believe that, right, that this is what Jesus was teaching. This is what Jesus wanted us to, you know, to work towards. Um, and, you know, if that is that our ultimate goal um, in our relationship with God and stuff, if it is, right, the manifesting this kingdom, um, I, I wonder, like, is scripture actually like hurting us and, you know, actually making it harder for us to get there? And, you know, I should also note, like, what's it's interesting about scripture, and this is this is across different religious traditions, is like there are often di- like pick a tradition for this case in Christianity. There are different lineages that have different relationships to scripture. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So like I'm from the southeast. Right. And I grew up um, folks who are, you know, Baptist from that neck of the woods. They'll 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 hear you talk about sword drills. Right. Where it's just like this idea of like you, you hear scripture and you have to open your Bible, flip to it and start reading um, uh, you know, like I have people in my family who are very good at sword drills or whatever. And in the mainline tradition, that is less present, right? Yeah. Um, this idea of being able to recitation of scripture mm-hmm. um, in a Christian context, like the memorization of it. These are mm-hmm. adages I often hear in my reporting of uh, more conservative, particularly of the Baptist ilk, evangelical probably, but Baptist ilk of like knowing scripture is to have memorized it. Mm. Whereas in some other traditions, whether that's mainline or Catholic or what have you, there's this element of interpretation of scripture, you know, like you spending, um, uh, you know, lots and lots of time in your sermon going through all these different historical elements, not yeah. having just the ability to recite scripture, but saying like, let's talk about this unearthing of archaeology in 1860 right. and like what have you. And sometimes people meld both of those, but you Well, get, it seemed like what I said here, like what's important to understand about like the audience is like when this was actually written, right? Like that that mm-hmm. goes into it. And that's not something that gets taken into consideration in everyone's understanding of scripture. Right. And I, I, it's just been, it's fascinating to kind of see. And then of course, the translations, right? Like those are like yep. hotly debated um, elements. We, we we cover that all the time. Like a new translation comes out and like that's a whole debate about like one, you know, quibble interpretation, you know, and I can point to my own divinity school experience. Like, you know, when I was learning ancient Greek and ancient Hebrew, like you start to get down to some of these ancient papyri, right? Where this, yeah. you know, where we have the basis for this and you start to feel it, realize that translation is, it's, is it, is an active interpretation in and of itself. Right. And mm-hmm. you, you know, better than I do about this, yeah. but like, just, just the, these words are not always crystal clear because language yep. often has ambiguity just by Well, like default. you said, which, pe- which, pe- which version of papyrus did they translate? Right. Because those don't all match. And that's the thing that right. people, yep. And we had to like, you know, realizing that like the gospels are a patchwork of different papyri to a, to, mm-hmm. to finally come to a rough consensus. And even then there's four of them, right? Like we like we couldn't even tell the story once. We're like, uh-huh. all right, let's like figure out. And I, I think that that's um, an interesting element of, you know, even translation is an act of interpretation. Reading yeah. is an act of interpretation. And the repercussions of that lead to wildly different tra- religious traditions. Yeah. So. 
Yeah, I mean, so these are all things that I think it's important to to keep in mind when we're when we're reading ancient stories, right? And why, you know, this is again, this is why I think that the the Bible can be such a gift, but I also think it can be very, very uh, dangerous when, um, you know, when you're having that very literal translation and trying to apply it across. A, a broad spectrum of, you know, of, of cultures of, you know, peoples and places that it just doesn't, I just don't think it can hold. What's the word I'm trying to find? I, you know, when you have this sort of like very black and white interpretation of the Bible and then therefore of the world, I think that that system can break down really, really, really quickly and can be very dangerous if you try to apply it that way. Yeah, and, I mean, and I think that even can be seen throughout scripture, right? When we're talking about, you know, especially if you want to get into, you know, some of the the stories and the judges, right? Of uh, they had a lot of gray area of what's right and wrong and black and white there, and depending on who's in charge, right, the decisions are different. And so, um, yeah, I just I think it can be very troublesome if you try to pin down this is exactly what we're supposed to do with this. Yeah, it's it's it seems it is. <laughs> It has always been a contentious pro- um, process in, in, in my read of history, and it continues to be a contentious process right now. Um, but I, I, you can you can point to several stories that are actively happening, you know, in real time right now where this like scriptural interpretation and the rigidity classically interpreted around them is is the point of main point of dispute. Right. Yeah. Um, and I and I, and I think it's it's, uh, you know, as a as a reporter, it's often fascinating because, you know, there's. You, you'll speak just in the past few weeks. I've spoken to people for whom they will cite the same the same words, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and have just wildly different interpretations of that text that go in wildly different directions and dictate their life and not only their life, but the lives of others, right? Mm-hmm. And to your point, like when you add rigidity to that, that's, you know, some would argue that's just like how institutions are created. But I mm-hmm. think one of the interesting elements around the last 500 years of, you know, again, just speaking of Christian history, but also in the last few decades of American history is that, um, you know, as a religion and politics reporter, disputes over those pieces of scripture have been have had direct political repercussions. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the 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 skepticism around religious institutions in general. Right. Um, has been something that. You know, I think we've seen this in polling has broken down in a lot of places. You know, one thing, just speaking, you know, some polling I've seen within the Catholic within Catholicism in the aftermath of the spotlight report, um, you know, waves of horrific sexual abuse within the church. Mm-hmm. One thing you'll find is that people still trust their local priest, but they don't trust like they they, they have uh-huh. higher approval ratings for local priests and nuns than bishops and the hierarchy. Like there's this yeah. distancing from yeah clerical authority that wasn't necessarily true just a few decades ago. So as we enter this interesting phase in American religious history and potentially global religious history, um, where, you know, the rejection of those authorities has become more common, right? This is also one of the reasons listed for the growth of the religiously unaffiliated in the United States, right? That is one of the fastest growing groups are people who don't necessarily don't claim any religious affiliation. That doesn't mean necessarily that they're atheists or agnostic, although some are, but they claim no religious affiliation. One thing you often hear is just like deep 
antipathy with religious institutions that they've mm -hmm. seen is unnecessarily rigid and unnecessarily draconian um, mm -hmm. and from their position for a variety oh, correct, of right? reasons. Just, yeah. So what what does that mean for religious institutions moving forward? Can they if they rebuild, what does that new structure look like? How do they make yeah. it from, from yeah. those who are who are making the same argument you are? You're like, this is dangerous. This is directly impacting and hurting people's lives. What do you build or do you build? And, you know, is it more mystical in that regard? I'm, well, that was the I, question I was going to ask you, Jack, was like, well, where do we go from <laughs> here that this this, you know, these, uh, you know, the, our interpretive differences of the Bible have created such a rift in especially American Christianity, but definitely global Christianity. Where do we go from here? Mm -hmm. No, I think this is uh, this and is how it permeates every aspect of our life, um, you know, from from politics to uh, you know everything for sure and i will i will admit i don't have an answer to this question i only have additional questions to add on top of it which sure. is sure bring I it think, well i think you know one thing we often if some of my colleagues report on are all of these movements within religious traditions that you know classically defined lead to more fracturing right like we're talking about the development of new denominations you know like the yeah. united methodist church for instance has is having um, yep. a schism of sorts if not that word there is a breaking apart into different denominations um we've seen that in a myriad of other mainline traditions as well yep. meanwhile um we've seen you know is, uh, some conservatives have um conservative christians have long argued that um, you know, mainline traditions are dying because, you know, they're not relevant or they're, you know, they're, they're, they're too in line with what they refer to as secular culture. But it turns out that a lot of those conservative Christian I mean, Christian traditions are also dying now. Right. Um, and they, they, they're hemorrhaging members to, um, at, at different levels as well. Mm -hmm. And so where are those people going? And we've tracked some of them, right? Like some expats from evangelicalism or um, Catholicism, for instance, are like sitting in the back of Episcopal churches, right? Um, and but like does it, but they aren't even necessarily affiliating with that mm -hmm. um, tradition. And and some of them were like getting really into mysticism, right? You know, or and other kinds of traditions like the popular like we were talking about the growth of um, Wicca cultures earlier. You know, that's a system that is, you know, classically defined and whether that's true. I defer to the folks in the tradition, but classically defined as a less rigid structure, right, than you would find um, in something else. Moreover, we're seeing a lot of religiously unaffiliated people um, really gravitate towards nature as this thing in which they find spiritual direction. They actually a lot the the i haven't seen the latest data so my data here is at like two or three years old um but religiously unaffiliated you know there's a whole section of them that still pray daily that still mm. actually like find deep um spiritual fulfillment in different religious what we would often quantify as religious practices that are just not attaching themselves to a, a tradition right um what what do you do in the aftermath of covid where a lot of people just kind of stopped going to church yeah. in a physical way but started going in uh you know in a virtual way you know there are religious people who are gen z right and like and again i've been talking about christianity a lot there's a there's a, a growth of religious traditions that are not that hindu muslim buddhist what have you um that that have different inter um, lenses through which to look at this sort of you know hierarchy um situation that we're discussing and, and mm -hmm. institutional conversation you know some of those institutions exist globally in a large way but domestically here in the united states actually don't have the same you know rigidity or at least size and so what do they think about faith moving forward and how have they how if they were impacted by the pandemic in terms of how they show up to worship what does that look like for them do they start going up physically or are they mostly looking at their phones um or at their watches for an app that kind of reminds them to be you know mindful or mm. to like listen to a prayer 
um, or listen to some sort of spiritual practice, you know, by themselves as opposed to in community. And so it's a long-winded way of saying, I feel like we are certainly having a domestic conversation um, about faith that extends it beyond this, like, pick a denomination within a Christian tradition um, or in another tradition. There's a lot of people who might even co-hyphenate, right? Um, yeah. Who say that they are um, uh, Buddhist Christians or Jewish Buddhist, um, who, like, claim a foot in both traditions, which, you know, experts and authorities in both of those traditions might say that's impossible or that's heretical. Right. But they don't think that. So they continue to exist yeah. in the spiritual community. How, where do those people land in 30, 40, 50 years? Should they build their own traditions or do they say, this is spiritual fulfilling for me and mine and maybe my family or my friends and that's enough? Um, I don't know. I, I, this, there's a lot of attention around this conversation of like about 10 years ago when like mm. everyone was like, oh, like my running group is my spiritual thing. And like, you know, conversations yeah. around yoga as a spiritual practice for a lot of people. But 10 years later, it, there hasn't been an answer. It's just still happening, <laughs> if that makes any sense. It does. And I think you're right of of also trying to figure out how to measure the impact that um, the pandemic had on all of this. And yeah. I don't, you're right. I still don't know if we fully know what that's going to look like. And, and I mean, you know, we've talked about how for a while now, the more important um indicator for a lot of how you structure your life particularly how you structure political life isn't your faith tradition um, your faith affiliation it's your party affiliation that's been true for a while now in the united mm -hmm. states um you know it's not like if you if you say you're this specific denomination that is significantly less likely to indicate your vote than if you say you're a republican or democrat or an mm -hmm. independent and um and that i think some people, and you know, if you if you talk to people 150 years ago, I think there'd be faith leaders who would see that as a failure of their tradition. They're like, we thought we were supposed to mold people for a certain kind of life, or our community was supposed to represent a certain disposition. And in the United States, particularly in moments of great, um, you know, upheaval or discord, which I would argue we are within, a lot of experts have argued that. Um, what does the role of faith become? in those spaces? Is it a source of division, which I think there's a lots of arguments to say that's the case? Or is it also a source of unity and or, or like, you know, or trying to talk across difference? And as a religion and politics reporter, you know, I see a lot more division and inability to cr talk across difference yeah. um, to the to the point of like, um, not considering each other, uh, just again, just re Christianity. Christians uh -huh. not considering each other Christians, right. despite that they both go to church on Sunday, they both have potlucks, they both are talking about the same scripture, but they're like, no, they're of a different tradition because of their views on one or two or three issues. Hmm. Um, and, and, and again, how does that all play into the fact that all these traditions are losing people who are just dumb with it, who are like, for one reason or another, just don't want to be a part of that. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's, that's my, my frazzled thoughts on that subject. No, I love that. Thank you. Um, and thanks for this is why I this is why you're here back as our uh, guest again, because um, just what you bring uh, is very enlightening, um, both in relation to scripture, but also as we try to understand um, the the world around us and how do we live into that as Christians, if we claim to be them. Right. Like, um, thank you. Thank you for for sharing all that. Um, thanks for I don't know. Just thanks for all your thoughts. I really appreciate uh, <laughs> having you and listening to you. So um, thanks for taking the time to share that with us.
I mean, it, it's you and my editor. So I'm glad somebody else <laughs> bit of it from it. My editor being like, okay, he's going off on one of his tangents again. All right. All right. No, I think I can speak for a lot of my listeners to say, yeah, Jack can come on, on the podcast and give tangents anytime <laughs> he wants. We're, we're here for it. So uh, that's why I was just trying to por- uh, point everybody to please go over and read, read his articles. Um, you're going to find some more good, um, good stuff um uh about that so thank you so much for sharing um everyone just please once again um you know share the podcast with friends and family and you can find us on on facebook and instagram at 10 football podcast and and on our website 10 um the 10 football podcast is a ministry of the delaware maryland synod to learn more go to demdsynod.org take care everyone